Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is sponsored in part by Book Riot's annual Read Harder Challenge, which is back. Read Harder 2020 has 24 tasks designed to help you break out of your reading bubble and expand your worldview through books. With new genres, new authors, and new points of view, the challenge will hopefully help you discover amazing books you wouldn't have otherwise picked up. Read historical fiction that's not about World War II, a retelling of a classic or fairy tale, horror from indie presses, and more in this year's challenge. Go to bookriot.com slash readharder to get the full challenge task list and to check out the prizing for those who complete the challenge. And there's a bonus prize this year. Welcome to SFF Yeah, a podcast dedicated to all things science fiction and fantasy. This is episode 73, and we are recording on February 21st. I'm Jen Northington. I'm here with Sharifa Williams, and we are coming to you from Book Riot. And today we're talking about Latinx SFF writers. Huzzah! So good. Hurrah! There are so many good ones out there, so difficult choice. Yeah, it was hard to narrow down. And I was thinking this might be an episode where we should just like dump a whole list of names into the show notes for people. Ooh, that's a really good idea. I'm yeah. down for that. All right. We'll do that. We'll do that. Uh, <laughs> but we did narrow it down. We ha- we do have some picks. We do. <laughs> Thankfully, we came, we pulled it together, and yeah. we have some recommendations for you today. Although I'm cheating a little bit, but whatever. That's okay. We do it all the time. <laughs> we do. Um, before we get into our news and then our writer picks, I would like to tell you about one of our sponsors, which is actually pretty appropriate. Today is Surrender by Ray Lariga from Mariner Books, and this is translated from Spanish by Carolina de Robertis, who is also an excellent writer in her own right. And I have actually read this one, so I'm excited to talk about it because it was real good. And apparently Ray Lariga is an award-winning Spanish author. I I had not heard of him before picking this up. And this is a dystopian novel about, as you might expect, authority, manipulation, and government. And the publisher is saying that it calls to mind The Handmaid's Tale and Blindness by Jose Saramago. And I can totally see those comps. It takes place, the unnamed narrator is part of a couple who live out in, you know, a rural countryside and it has been like their their region has been at war for 10 years and their sons have gone off to fight and they haven't heard from them for a really long time um and they have adopted a young boy who is mute and who has just like wandered onto their property at one point and they're doing okay but then you know the war comes closer and closer and the regional government says we're evacuating you and you all must go to the city and they have this like sort of harrowing journey to a city that's made out of glass entirely like the floors are glass the buildings are glass the subway is glass like everything is glass and there's all kinds of weird science like scientists have figured out how to make people not smell anymore so you go into the shower when you get there and like 
then you come out and you have no more body odor, which I guess is cool, but like also has weird effects on people. And everything is provided for you, including a job and your food. And, you know, it's very like seems utopian, but then you discover it's increasingly totalitarian. And it ends on a really sort of eerie note. The whole book is just eerie. Uh, so if you are a fan of those kind of near future weird government. It's very like We by Yevgeny Zamyatin or 1984 also, like that kind of vibe, then this one is for you. So again, that's Surrender by Ray Lariga from Mariner Books. Mm, Very nice. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I'll tell you what. Well, I'm going to start, I'm going to kick us off with news and I'm just going to go ahead and go right into my big one, Um, Mm -hmm. which by the way, I should let everybody know that this one does have, there could potentially be triggers for race-related violence. This is about a really terrible, tragic time in U.S. history. And the story, which is about Watchmen and also about the 1921 Tulsa race massacre was brought to my attention because somebody posted this N.K. Jemison tweet where she says, because of Watchmen, decades of historians have been trying to let the world know about this massacre. It took an, enti- an alternate history comic book drama to break the wall of racism. I don't know whether to laugh or cry, but let no one say fiction has no power in the real world. So what happened, The Root um, published this story about how the 1921 Tulsa race massacre is going to officially become part of Oklahoma school curriculum curriculum beginning in the fall and this is not like we just all this happened in 1921 this is a a event a terrible event involving the deaths of many many black people and the destruction of many black businesses basically this area in Tulsa home Tulsa Oklahoma that was dubbed the Black Wall Street was completely destroyed in this race massacre uh, by white people in the area who were retaliating against black people because of this really, it's hard to know what this incident actually was, but a, as described in the Los Angeles Times piece that I'll also be linking because it gives more um, context to what actually happened and how the Watchmen series brought light to it, uh, was that a young woman, a young white woman screamed when a black man entered the elevator and it incited this horrible, horrible massacre where businesses were burned down and people were killed and it was driven by the KKK as well and organized. So The way the Watchmen series is connected to it is that there is an episode where the Tulsa, Oklahoma massacre is addressed and it became sort of, I don't know if trending is the right word, but it did bring light to this incident that has really, especially when you read this LA Times article, it's kind of infuriating because you realize how secreted away information was like actual documents about accounting this event were destroyed and people actively tried to 
remove this and erase this event from history so people wouldn't know how terrible it was. And they also tried not to call it a massacre so that insurance companies wouldn't have to pay black businesses for the destruction. So there is so, so much tied into this story and into the history of this really tragic and terrible event. And the conclusion of it is that um, people in power in Oklahoma have decided to make it part of the education because obviously this has not been taught in any sort of substantial way in schools in Oklahoma, even though this is a huge part of that region's history. So they are trying to make steps to make that part of the curriculum to talk about the Tulsa massacre and to actually provide resources to students so that they can learn about what happened. And I just thought this was especially in light of N.K. Jemison's tweet talking about, you know, the power of fiction and what it can do. I honestly was really hesitant about watching the Watchmen series. This does make me feel like maybe I should watch it. It also makes me really nervous about watching it because I feel like this could be a a difficult thing to to watch and to see. I don't know how deep it goes into it because I haven't watched the actual episode being referenced. What do you think, Jen? Yeah, I have seen the episode. It's okay. the pilot. And basically the first, I want to say, 10 minutes are you're dropped in the middle of the massacre and you're oh, following um, a young boy and his mother as they're trying to get to safety. And it is really horrifying. It's really graphic. It is. It just does not pull any punches. And um, yeah, I mean, I think that it's pretty clear that the filmmakers are 100% aware of the horror of it. Like it's not... I, I, I mean, I, you know, I'm white. So what it's, my opinion is sort of unimportant and not um, informed in certain ways. But, you know, from what I've been understanding um, around the conversation, because I've read a lot of the discourse around this episode, people are very sort of split on that opening. Mm. Um, I think to some people it feels exploitative and to others it feels very uh, important because it's showing the horror of that moment. So, you know, everybody is, of course, entitled to their own experience of that and, and, and to their personal history they bring to that. So it's a complicated thing. Um, I, I will say I watched, so I watched the whole first episode and the whole show, well, like was clearly going in a very dark, intense, graphically violent direction, just like in general. And I was not quite up to it, but I know that I have a lot of friends who have said it's the best single season of TV they've ever seen. And there's a lot of interesting pieces on it online if you Google around. So yeah, really interesting. But this, you know, this is really, I mean, this, the fact that this year is when the school curriculum in Oklahoma is going to start teaching this is both just, I mean, it's like, basically criminal, that it hasn't been addressed before now, but also really, you know, a step in the right direction. And it is just bonkers to think that like an HBO show about, yeah, based on a comic book can do something like that. But it's true. It's true. Yeah. Um, and I, 
I feel the same way. It is a really complicated cocktail because of the the fact that it, it always sort of these incidents and when people react to things in this way, like there is a part of me that is happy that finally it is being addressed. And then there's a part of me that's like, is it just because they don't want people to be talking about it and asking questions and they're trying to like preemptively mm. make this a thing? In any case, I am glad that for the students who are going to be learning about it, that they'll be more informed than even perhaps their parents were about this mm-hmm. event and they'll have some some information and you know these these things are this knowledge is important so that we don't make the same mistakes and so that we see when stuff like this is about to happen again because it does feel like sometimes history is repeating itself so mm. the more knowledge the better yeah it's just true it's just true <laughs> Well, okay. So let's see. On a lighter note, uh, let's talk about the Nebula finalists, which were yes. announced very recently. Um, I This is an interesting list. I don't know if you've had a chance to look at it much. Mm-hmm. There are a lot of great books on the novel list and the novella. I mean, they're all great, obviously. (laughs) They're all great. (laughs) The ones that I've read, I'm in particular happy to see. Although I was, I will say that the novel list is the whitest it's been in a minute. Um, We've had some really good diverse slates for the Nebula Award for Best Novel over the past couple years. Mm -hmm. And this one, um, the only person of color that I'm aware of is Silvia Moreno-Garcia. And so, you know, and there was some really amazing fiction that came out over the last year by persons of color. So I was a little bummed to see that. But it's hard to be too mad about it because there are some really great books on the list. What did what do you oh and the novella list is super I mean the top yeah. five, it's like very diverse and under the novella category. So that's good. Yeah, I agree. I was really surprised um, by the the novel category as well. There are some favorites, you know, The 10,000 Doors of January, Gods of Mm -hmm. Jade and Shadow, which is Sylvia Morena Garcia, which is... Gideon the Ninth is on there. Uh Uh-huh. Yes, that's a big rioter favorite, particularly. Um, And I was really, of course, happy to see Ted Chiang and P. Jelly Clark Clark on the novella list. This is How You Lose the Time War is a book that I have been really wanting to get to read. So um, that's exciting as well. But I agree. The novel list was kind of surprising to me. And then also I was a little bit surprised because I didn't really recognize a lot of the YASFF titles Mm, for the mm -hmm. um, Andre Norton Award for Outstanding Young Adult Science Fiction or Fantasy book. I do know, like, Yoon-ha Lee is fantastic, um, but the rest of them I am not as familiar with, and I feel like I'm usually pretty on top of what's going on in YASFF, but maybe, I don't know, perhaps this was a year where I was a little bit less um, on the ball. <laughs> <laughs> no, I I have only heard of two of them, which, again, doesn't make a lot of sense to me, but, you know... Maybe. Who knows? Who knows? Who knows? It's an interesting list, though. Um, I I don't know as many of the short story books either, but I am 
quite honestly not like always on top of the short story categories <laughs> of anything. Same, same. I'm like so deep in novel, novella world right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's an interesting list. And in novella, The Deep is there as well, which was exciting. Oh, um, so good. I almost so good. saying that. But you can check out the full list, of course, and get your, your ideas for what you want to read next as usual. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, what do I want to talk about next? Ooh, do you want to talk about the Green Knight trailer? I sure do. Yeah. (laughs) I kept seeing this come up, um, and I hadn't watched it until you put it into our show notes. And I finally watched it, and I totally got the chills. I feel like this is definitely – are you – did you read – the Green Knight, did you read the actual original story? It's been a really long time. Yeah. Like, at one point, I did. And I do not remember what happens. And I think it's also useful to point out that this, like, this is a teaser trailer. Mm-hmm. And it's, like, a minute and 40 seconds <laughs> of just, like, goth metal King Arthur. Like, but you don't know what the heck is going on. Like, there's no clear anything to me in that teaser. I don't know. Did you feel like you had any sense of what was going to happen in this movie? I got the sense of beheadings. Okay, <laughs> it's yeah, the big right. thing. There were some moments of like, I just found it overall really creepy, which I love. Mm -hmm. And I like to pretend I'm like, I'm kind of over grimdark stuff, but I am 100% not. (laughs) I was totally amped when I was watching it because it was so dark. It sort of almost felt like uh, I didn't really enjoy Macbeth, the adaptation that came out recently and but i really loved like the tone of it if that makes sense like that dark sort of creepy there's something in the there's something happening that's going mm. to get under your skin feeling mm. and this gave me that but it also looked like you know acting wise and concept wise i feel like this is going to be my bag 100% and yeah the casting is fantastic as well oh my god dave patel as a knight (laughs) is just everything i've ever wanted (laughs) that's what i kept hearing about online and i was like i have to watch this just because i was seeing some i think they were early stills from Uh the film and i was like i i need to watch this this is going to be amazing and sure enough I can't wait until we see more trailers, but I do love having a bit of that mystery there because you don't really know what's going on. And then you see like this, if you watch the the actual trailer, I don't want to spoil it all for you, but there is like a actual monster moment, which is, mm-hmm. I was just yesing all the way through it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it comes out this summer too, so that's nice. We don't have to wait too long to see it. Um and I'm just I'm here for it. I don't know. I think I might I'm a little nervous honestly, Sharifa, because you know, it does feel really horror-y. And oh, like yeah. Horror King Arthur is not a thing. <laughs> I would have thought of and I love obviously I love all things King Arthur so much I'm gonna have to see it but I'm like well I have to like 
hide in the theater for half of this movie like I might I might have to we'll see you might need to bring like a comfort thing like a a yeah. comfort blanket. Or yes. Like, <laughs> what are those, like, what are those uh, vests for dogs? Oh, a thunder like, vest. Thunder, thunder vest. jacket. <laughs> I'll just, I'll be, like, in the theater with a weighted blanket. Yeah. Like, it's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> oh, my goodness. That would be hilarious. You might have to. I, I 100% agree that this looks like it might be super creepy. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm ready. I'm, I'll be ready anyway. <laughs> yes, me too. Um, all right. So for our last little bit of news, this is a quick one. The Ray Bradbury Prize was recently created and the inaugural finalists were announced as part of the Los Angeles Times Book Prize announcement. And it is a really, I, you know, the reason I put this in there is just because the list is so interesting. Mm-hmm. And I, I mean, we're on record as believing that no prizes should be named after specific people. I maintain that still. Like, I <laughs> wish they had named it something else. Um, but, you know, it is what it is. But the list is super interesting. Ted Chang is on there. This is How You Lose the Time War by Amal El Motar and Max Gladstone is there. Brian Evanson, Marlon James, and then Namwali Serpel, who I have not read or heard of. Um, but, yeah, super interesting. And the judging, uh, the jurors for this were Kelly Link, Tananarive Du, and Tim Pratt. And I'm just like, well, dang. Wow. Like, that is a jury that I'm here for. Wow, I did. I completely missed that when I was looking at this. That's really amazing. I'm actually reading a Tanana Reef do right now, so nice. it's very top of mind. But yeah, that's yeah. excellent. No wonder this list is so interesting, right? That's what I was thinking. So yeah, we'll link to that. You can check it out. Definitely. Um, okay. I am going to tell you about our sponsor before we get into our recommendations and. Today's episode is sponsored in part by All the Stars and Teeth by Adeline Grace with Fierce Reads. A bloodthirsty princess desperate to reclaim her crown, a pirate searching for his stolen magic, a mermaid escaping her oppressor, a stowaway with regenerative powers, the crew makes the queen and she will reign. New York Times bestselling author of Children of Blood and Bone, Tomi Adeyemi, calls this thrilling debut fierce and unrelenting. Set in a kingdom where danger lurks beneath the sea, mermaids seek vengeance with song, and magic is a choice. Adeline graces all the stars and teeth is a high-stakes fantasy, perfect for fans of Stephanie Garber's Caravel and Sarah J. Mass's Throne of Glass series. You can join the crew wherever books are sold, and I, for one, am always interested in anything recommended by Tomi Adeyemi, who I love. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, you should check out All the Stars and Teeth by Adeline Grace. And thanks to Fierce Reed for sponsoring today's episode. Okay, book talk time. Do you want to start us off, Jen? Yes, I would love to start us off. I cheated in a couple of different ways. I sort of slash sort of don't apologize. (laughs) (laughs) Totally fine. Yeah, there were so okay, so I was trying to pick things that we really hadn't talked about much already on this show. So that narrowed things down quite a bit. And then my sci fi pick is not 
exactly sci-fi. But it's not exactly fantasy either. It's an alternate world story that is sort of a oppressive government rebellion story. So I feel like that's in betweeny enough. There's not a lot of technology, but there's also not that much magic. So we'll just call it speculative and move on with our lives. Yes. <laughs> and and I'm also cheating because I picked a two book set as opposed to just one. It's We Set the Dark on Fire and then the sequel We Unleash the Merciless Storm by Taylor K. Mejia. And I love this series so much. It is so satisfying. It is such a good, like sometimes with duologies, I'm like, oh, you could have made that a trilogy and then I would have more. Like, why didn't you do that thing? And this one, I'm just like, no, this is a perfect two book series. Like it is exactly as long as it needs to be. I got exactly what I wanted out of it. I mean, it's not that I wouldn't love more in that world, but it is so satisfying the way it is. And it is about, it is technically YA, it's about two older girls who are attending the Medio School for Girls where they are trained to become the perfect wives for, you know, high-ranking slash rich men. And the way that marriage works in this society is that every man gets two wives. Uh, well, who can afford it? Uh, a primera and a segunda. And the primera is the one who's ambitious and driven, and she's supposed to help her husband's career. So she's like the perfect hostess, and she knows how to wheel and deal and be, you know, schmooze and do all the networking and all of these things. And she's going to run the household like clockwork. And then the segunda is supposed to be the beautiful, emotional, sensual one who who, you know, cares for the husband's emotional needs and, you know, does all of the girly, girly stuff, I guess. And so the young women in the school are taught to be the perfect primera or segunda, depending on how, you know, the administration divides them up. And so in the first book, we meet Danny, Daniela Vargas, who is like a top student. She's going to be a primera and she's all set to be the betrothed of one of like the most important, you know, politico's sons. And she is there under false pretenses. She's actually from a family. They live on an island that's fiercely divided, like including a giant wall. And she's from the other side of the wall, but nobody can know. She's there on fake papers. Her family sacrificed everything to send her to the other side of the wall so that she could have a better life. And her entire life basically exists to like you know, have a better life than her parents. And this is the way they thought they could do that. And so she's like, just trying to keep her head down, do the best she can get safety and security by doing what's expected of her. And then she gets contacted on graduation night by the rebellion faction who are like, we know who you are. And if you don't work for us, we're gonna expose you. And so she now has to figure out like, how does she keep herself safe? How does she keep her family safe? And, you know, does she agree with these rebels? Like, what are they asking for? What do they want her to do? Um, what is she risking? And then the second book follows uh, Carmen, who is the Segunda, who Danny is at loggerheads with at the start of the first book. And so you get both of their perspectives. And I don't want to give much away because the, it's so cool the way this plays out. But it's, it's just it's a beautiful queer love story. It's very much about the different ways that 
women inhabit society and how resistance can look a lot of different ways and still be valid, how one person's resistance is not another person's resistance. And that's there's nothing wrong with that. You need all of these different ways of resisting, just like you need all of these different ways of being a person. You can't put people into these kinds of boxes. Um, so it's really tackling this idea of like dividing women from each other and putting them into very stratified roles. It's about what we do for family and what our families want for us and what it means to have family. And it's I think I love it so much because, you know, there's a lot of YA out there about toppling corrupt governments like that's not a new thing. But what I feel like. Mejia has done here is, first of all, she's given us, you know, a cultural component that you just really don't see. And she and it's so rich, like there's so much mythology and like beautiful practices woven into the culture of these stories. Oh, it's fantastic. And the setting itself is also really lush and really vivid. Um, but she's also, you know, I think she's she's dealing with these very raw truths and she's not afraid to like let her characters mess up and fail and try again. And ha there are consequences for their actions that then they need to process and grieve and like figure out how to move forward and it's so real with those emotions and I think maybe that's what I haven't always gotten from these stories in the past it's not cut and dry it's not just like fight until you win like there's so much more going on here than that so I just I love this series so much they're both out now you should read them all again it's we set the dark on fire and then we unleash the merciless storm by Taylor K. Mejia I'm really glad you found it satisfying because that is a series I wanted to get to this year. So yes. it's definitely going to happen. Yay. All right. Well, my science fiction pick is one I believe we have talked about at least maybe once. Um, and it's Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez. And this one had been on my list ever since I first set eyes on that truly glorious cover with the cats in astronaut yes. helmets floating in space. I just, you know, anything with cats on it, I'm a sucker for. So, and it's a really chilling effect is a super funny, super quirky and really, really entertaining space opera about Captain Eva Innocente and her crew who are aboard the spaceship La Sirena, uh, La Sirena Negra. And the incident that sets off the story is this kidnapping and it's the kidnapping of Eva's sister by this really shady, really powerful syndicate called The Fridge. And The Fridge seems to have the power to destroy a person's livelihood in a heartbeat and they don't mind doing that. They're not afraid to play dirty if that means that they're going to get what they want. So Eva has come a long way from a less than squeaky clean past and she finds herself in this position where she might have to throw away everything she's worked for, including her team's trust in their captain, which is like, of course, it's, it's hugely important to her and also to the functioning of the ship and their missions. But she has to do this. She has to make some decisions in order to save uh, her sister. And I'm sure you can guess how smoothly things go when she keeps secrets from people who will be directly affected by the choices she makes. So what ends up following is this really hot mess of reluctant lies and missteps and missions gone awry, as well as secrets revealed. And then there are also intergalactic battles and family drama, and there's also some romance 
And of course, of course, there are psychic cats in the mix. And I got the chills thinking about what life would be like if my cat, Tabitha, gained psychic powers. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> so when I read about it, I was, I realized they present no small conundrum, especially since they're too cute to throw out of the airlock, which <laughs> completely relate to. And so Valerie Valdez is Cuban-American, and that influence is definitely in this book. And I find that I tend to pick up on the culinary aspects of cultural and regional influence more than anything else. Surprise, surprise. And, <laughs> you know, Latinas in space is something also we don't get nearly enough of from the world of publishing. So like many of the rioters, I was really, really excited about this title. And it did not disappoint. I personally gravitate to science fiction that's really heavy on humor. And... Because Eva regularly made really terrible decisions, put this real put this right in my wheelhouse because it is very relatable. <laughs> and there were also a lot of really fun pop culture references down to the chapter titles. And while the stories set in a very different place and time than what we know now, uh, many of the situations were relevant to today, including things like, you know, gross dudes in positions of power feeling entitled to attention and more from disinterested women. So this book is very of the moment in that way. And for any fellow audiobook listeners, Chilling Effect has a really excellent narrator. Amari Guerra helped Eva and the story come to life. And that the book has a really cinematic quality in terms of storytelling just made it that much better. And I would absolutely watch the film adaptation if anybody decided to do that. Hint, hint, wink, wink. <laughs> so again, I've been talking about Chilling Effect by Valerie Valdez extremely cosign yes. that's one of my <laughs> favorites of the last however many months so good uh, so 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 good. so good yeah uh okay my next pick is one i was sort of astonished to find that i had not talked about on this show before because i feel like it's a classic but yeah i i had never brought it up so now i'm bringing it up it's Kalpa Imperial by Angelica Gorodischer, who is an Argentinian writer. And this was translated by Ursula Le Guin. So, like, let's wow. take a moment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, let's take a moment to think about that. That's amazing. And it is such a fascinating book because, you know, the jury is kind of out on whether this is a novel or a short story collection. It is all tales of this one empire that like rose and fell and rose again. And it's 11 stories of that empire, but they don't have that much of a through line, theoretically. Uh, it's, you know, the, the narrators shift from time to time. What ruler is in power shifts from time to time. Some of them feel a little sci-fi, and then some of them feel very fantastical, and then some of them feel sort of mythological or fable-esque. So it's a really shifty book. It changes, you know, from one section to the next. But I love that. I love it so much. And the stories are all so individual and have such different feels to them that it's sort of amazing how when you're done with it, you're left with this sort of, I feel like, a very enmeshed feeling, even though the details were very disparate. Like the feeling I get from this book is sort of of this idea of how power 
plays in and out of our lives and how sometimes it does it in good ways and then sometimes it does it in terrible ways. And then sometimes you're just not even paying attention to the politics and you're like worried about, you know, the girl down the street or whatever. You're thinking about your mundane life. So the balance between all of those elements in Kalpa Imperial is so interesting. It does get dark for sure. Mm. And it also has some stuff. I mean, it was written in, I want to say, like the 70s. And there's some stuff that's like a little bit has not aged that well. Um, but I think that the 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 writing itself, the prose is amazing. The imagery is amazing. And the storytelling is just fascinating. It's such a lesson in playing with narrative and what you can do with different voices. And the stories themselves are so fascinating. It felt kind of to me like a sort of, yeah, like like Latina, um, like Ovid's Metamorphosis or like Homer. Like it has that sort of epic mythical quality to it. And it's really interesting too, because there was a lot of political upheaval going on in Argentina when Angelica Gordisha wrote it. So, you know, I think she's, there are interviews out there with her talking about the influences on the book from that and how, you know, she thought she was writing about one thing and she found in fact that she was writing about terror the whole time. So it's deeply informed by the political situation in Argentina, which I think is, I don't, I didn't know it when I read it, but when I think back on the reading experience and then what I've learned since then, I think it's really interesting to put those two together. So if you like that kind of like gauzy mythological feel to your fiction, I mean, I think, you know, uh, Madeline Miller is doing this too with Greek mythology, Mm -hmm. but in a different way, like it's that kind of prose, that kind of feel. It's not necessarily plot driven. It's very much about character and setting, but it's so good and it's so interesting and oh, the prose is just fantastic. So highly recommend. Again, that's Kelpa Imperial by Angelica Gorodischer. Wow, that sounds fascinating. It's so good. I'm glad you put that on my radar. Yay. Okay, well, my fantasy pick is Woven in Moonlight by Isabel Ibanez, which I literally finished earlier this week and it was such a joy to read. This is YA fantasy. I should also note that there's lots of bloodshed and violence, so do with that what you will. I really love this story. I couldn't put it down. It follows Jimena, who's a decoy condessa chosen to act in the real condessa's place for her safety. And Jimena and and the Condesa are best friends. They grew up together. They also share in the loss of their parents and their lives as they knew them to this really terrible battle between their people, the Illustrians, and the revolters, the Loxans. And the two sides are still in battle years later, and Jimena and the Condesa are young women at the start of the story. They're trying to do the best for their people, but they're in a really bad place, especially in terms of like just even being able to feed their people. And also... They're trying to reclaim La Ciudad, which they once called home. But in order to save her people, Jimena is forced to return to La Ciudad to become Atok, who is the usurper, to become his queen. So over the weeks where Jimena is basically held captive in the Castillo, she suffers really terrible losses and also feels the pain of being surrounded by the enemy 
And she feels like she's in this contradictory place where she's the decoy, but also she has this, like, one of her driving forces is just having the ability to one day be herself, not be the decoy, but actually act in her own interests and do the things she enjoys, like anybody would, uh, just to be her own individual and to have agency over her life. So... In addition to having the change of scenery be this traumatic and miserable experience for her, it also becomes a big change of perspective because she's surrounded by different things. She's surrounded by different people and she's struggling with the dynamics that she starts to have and the bonds she begins to make because it means questioning her entire worldview and also her loyalties and there's just so much good stuff in this story. It explores themes of oppression and privilege and exploring the internal battle of recognizing your privilege. That was a big theme in this book. And it also takes to task the all-too-familiar erasure of the histories of indigenous people. Uh, both of the author, Isabel Ibanez's parents, are Bolivian immigrants, and the book is inspired by Bolivian history and politics. It goes into the drug trade, drawing from the history of the coca plant as this cash crop in Bolivia, and the story also makes clear how it wreaked havoc on the country and its people. And I was just talking about cuisine, and this book made me really hungry on a side note. <laughs> Because <laughs> Jimena happens to have a voracious appetite, and there's so much talk about the food, which is uh, Bolivian. And I ended up desperately wanting to try a salteña after reading about it in the book. So I'm going to be on a quest to find one of those. And it even included instructions on the best way to eat a salteña, which I so appreciated. <laughs> and there's also romance in the novel, a very sweet and satisfying one. It has a lot of tension, all the good things, and also in between sweet romance and things like that. There's a lot of sword fighting because Jimena is not just a decoy. She's a masterful swords person and a super talented weaver. There's moon magic. There are magical animal friends and basically everything I want in a story. It really is a wonderful debut. Again, that was Woven in Moonlight by Isabel Ibanez. I have that on my TBR, and hearing you talk about it and also seeing your Instagram post, I'm just dying to get to it now. I'm so ready. I'm so oh, ready. I'm so excited to hear what you think of it when you get to yeah, it. Yeah, I will try to get to it sooner rather than later. Okay. Uh, let's see. So I forgot to do my trigger warnings for uh, the Taylor K. Mejia books, so I'm going to do that real quick now, mm -hmm. and they're also in the show notes. Uh, the We Set the Dark on Fire and We Unleash the Merciless Storm get trigger warnings for sexual assault, torture, racial violence, and homophobia. It is pretty bleak in certain moments. And then we'll have a bunch more uh, Latinx authors in the show notes for you to explore, some of whom we've talked about already, some of whom we maybe haven't touched on in a while but deserve your reads. So you can find more there. And thank you all for listening. It is always a delight for me and Trefa to nerd out at you. Mm -hmm. We <laughs> hope that you will email us uh, with theme ideas or suggestions or feedback or whatever. It's sffyeah at bookriot.com. We also hope you will take a moment to review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps other nerds to find the show, which we really appreciate. And you can find us online in between shows. Sharifa, where are you? 
I am on Instagram at Sina Williams. That's S-C-A-I-N-A-B Williams. And you can find me on Twitter as Jen IRL, Jen with two N's, IRL, and on Instagram as I am Jen IRL. And we'll talk to you next time. Bye.